What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Coach Andrea. Andrea, thank you for being here again. No problem. Glad to be back. So talk us through what has been going on the last month with your training and nutrition. What are you up to? The last month, I've been in like a metabolic phase with training. So higher, higher reps and sets, lower weight, um, very little rest time, just working on like getting a pump basically. And that will change next week. So I go into a different training phase next week. Um, diet has just been kind of like just holding steady. I haven't really changed a whole lot at some point. I'm going to work the calories up a little bit and hold for a bit and then start dieting. But I don't know when exactly that'll be. So there's not a whole lot of change (laughs) since we talked about it last time. So for your metabolic programming, is that like every movement has a very short rest period or like, I know like how, like I program in like the programming that I run, we have like a metabolite phase where it is okay. Maybe one muscle group, like most things are still going to be straight sets or like a top set and a couple down sets. You're still going to rest like two to three minutes. And then like, okay, maybe today is like metabolite focus for your chest. And we're going to do like a cable fly super set with push-ups to failure. Right. But that's like, in your case, it's quite a bit different, right? Yeah, it's a lot different than anything I've ever done before. So I've always done like just exactly what you're describing or like um, like DUP style whenever I did powerlifting. So the, every day had different rep ranges and like you'd basically start out with the heavier stuff and work your way to like isolation exercises where you're taking a little bit le- lower rest and doing um, more re- more reps. This mm-hmm. is like very segmented into different training stimuluses, stimuli, stimuli. <laughs> so yeah, stimuluses did not sound good. Um, so, so I'll do like a strength phase, strength mesocycle where everything is heavier and everything gets more rest and there's very few exercises. And I'll go through that for the full mesocycle. And then I'll do um, like I'm doing now with the, this metabolite phase where it's every single thing, even like starting out with, so I started out with, um, hamstring curls on the rower today and you do, I do six by six and then I'll go to sumo deadlifts. And even on sumo deadlifts, it's like 40 second rest, 12 reps. So it's, and it's specifically like not heavy. So, um, yeah, it's way different than anything I've ever done before. Uh, well, it's, it's a lot lighter. Cause you know, you like, you can't go heavy on those if you're only going to rest four seconds and 12 reps is pretty exhausting on deadlifts anyway. Okay. okay. That's, that's interesting. So for like, typically when we're talking about like a, so do you feel like, like what's your RIR on those sets? One, one RIR. Yeah. Okay. Well, because so it's programmed as one RIR, but one RIR feels different whenever you're doing lactic work than it does like strength work. Um, Good point. So it, it is one RIR, but it's more so it's like a different feeling. It's not like I'm so taxed that I can't do one more. It's just like, you've got a pump. And if you went any heavier, you would not be getting the right stimulus. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. in order to only rest 40 seconds. Yeah, that's that's a good insight. I with like a 
like a conventional deadlift or sumo deadlift. I feel like traditionally that's where, actually, let me ask you that. So like in your programming for a client, would you program it that way or would you be hesitant to? I don't think I would because, well, it depends on the person. So I have one client in mind that I definitely could see doing that um, Mm -hmm. because she's really good at deadlifting. (laughs) And I know that she's been doing it a long time. Other than that, though, anybody who hasn't been doing it a long time, I don't think I would program it that way just because it's so easy to shift your form as the set goes on. And deadlifting, I just reserve for like lower reps, not necessarily Mm -hmm. for hypertrophy. Um, But yeah, I've been deadlifting a long time and I feel really solid on my form. Like I can really feel it in my glutes and hamstrings. I can kind of change the way that I perform the rep in order to feel my glutes more or change it to feel my hamstrings more. Um, So if it wasn't somebody who I was really confident that they would be able to do uh, do it that way, then I wouldn't. Okay. That's, I think that too, like knowing the client's personality type is so important. Like, you know, for me, if I, like some clients are very good. There's kind of like one or two directions I've seen where like, okay, half of the clients is like, yo, and honestly, I don't want to all be stereotypical, but typically we can like (laughs) women and men. Like anecdotally, most guys, it is, Yo, you need to dial the weight way back. Your form is getting pretty sloppy and focus on execution rather than pushing the load. Right. So, and I would say like too, like I fall into that camp. I'd like me envisioning myself doing that. Like it would be very, very hard for me to dial back the load and like light enough to, are you changing, are you changing load over sets though? Or is it staying the same? It stays the same. So across four sets of 12 with only 40 seconds rest at 12 reps with the same load is the same RIR. It's yeah, it's programmed that way. Of course it gets harder over the course, but like practically you can't even like change the weights in 40 seconds. (laughs) So like, of course it always feels harder as you go on. But uh, like I said, that it, if I were to do like, let's say I started out with um, more weight on it or more reps, I don't feel like I could continue that same form and mm-hmm. only rest 40 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just curious. This is all this interesting to me. Cool. Um, dope. And I would say only going to continue that on the flip side, like anecdotally and often with women, it's like, we'll see form videos and yo, okay. Like, I think I can think of one one of my clients <laughs> just recently. I was like, "Hey, literally on all your lower body movements, because I I want you to add ten pounds, because I, all her form videos, her form was impeccable, but it's like this is you have like six reps left in the tank here, um, yeah. and for her, yeah, that's the, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, but that's the other thing. Like, I think if I programmed for most of my clients, if I program that four by twelve on a deadlift, they'd be using such lightweight <laughs> you know what i mean like the, if you program it as a strength exercise it like switches the intent in your head to go a little heavier um so yeah anyway what were you saying no that and that makes sense but uh, i would say as well like uh and th- like for her i was like <laughs> i literally want you to add 10 to 15 pounds to all your lower body movements and she's like really that feels like it's like we're really really going for it 
It's like, no, like, trust me, you got this. And then it's just, oh, like, that was crazy. Like, I still felt like I just, like, hit my RR targets perfectly. I'm so much stronger than I expected. And again, like, I think that's, like, typically people fall in one to two, one or two camps. So if I'm correct, then what you're saying is almost like your deadlift is more of a conditioning exercise. Or no? Uh, I don't know that I would say conditioning. I mean, I guess, like, uh, not cardiovascular conditioning. Like whenever you say conditioning, that's where my mind goes. Um, yeah. But it's metabolite. So it's basically just like buildup of like lactic acid in the muscle, right? So like um, driving nutrients to the muscle, like trying to um, utilize blood glucose, like that kind of thing. So I guess and it I is like for the muscle. <laughs> and I would say in that case too, like if metabolite accumulation is the goal, than like hitting a sp- specific RAR target. It's like when we're training, when we're focusing on mechanical tension, right? Like get, bringing a muscle fiber close enough to failure to elicit these new adaptations and muscle growth. Like that, the concept of effective reps. And like, again, probably it's thought five reps, but really for most people, like three reps shy of failure or less is probably a good idea. But and that's like what I, when we enter a metabolite phase, that's what I'm going to explain to clients a lot as well is like, hey, this is almost look at this as an entirely different stimuli. Stimul- I think actually that it should be stimulus in that case. Look at this as a different stimulus <laughs> than mechanical tension, right? Like almost like two different adaptations that are both contributing to muscle growth is kind of how, how I've explained it. So like in your case, like basically what I was saying there is like, Okay, if it's well, four sets of 12 with 40 seconds rest, but they're all the one RIR, like, I would be somewhat skeptical of that, especially if we're saying they're getting harder and harder across each set, right? Then, like, the RIR is probably changing. But, again, they're, like, metabolite accumulation being the goal. Like, it, it's, it's, in simplest terms, like, the burn is, a, like, more important than, like, okay, I for sure hit this one RIR, right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, long time. <laughs> I don't know how we got out of trouble, but anyways, cool. Um, so past that, anything else going on with you? Uh, no, not with me. Have you talked oh. about your diet on here much? Um, I had Chaz on the other day and we talked about it, but oh, I'm guessing you? this episode will drop before that. Yeah, it's going well. Uh, what I'm 15 pounds down. So I'm down to 217, started at 232, what I just finished week six. So that's been good. Um, I felt great so far. It's super interesting to look at like how much different you feel when, so like, and this, I was talking about this with Chad as well. So listeners listen to that as well. Sorry, you have to hear this twice, (laughs) but it's super interesting to like, okay, so right now I'm at 2000 to 2100 calories. Well, what are your calories at right now? Uh, Like 1750, 1800. Okay. Cool. So we're rel- we're relatively close, right? Yeah. Uh, but like hunger hasn't been too bad by any means. Training has still felt good. It's interesting to like, so like my first photo shoot, I never got below 2,500 calories and I got all the way down to 185. Oh, wow. But it's so interesting, like how much of your hunger is actually tied to body fat, right? Like, because then I was, yeah. like at that time, like, <laughs> like we were talking about, like I was literally, I was literally like the last month before my photo shoot. I remember like eating spoonfuls of mustard just like by themselves. Oh my gosh. So, so hungry and mustard zero calories. Um, I'm just like doing all this stuff now that it's like, damn, 
that is that's kind of wild <laughs> like whereas yeah. now like on lower calories it's but again like so much of that is simply like so much of your hunger is tied to the amount of body fat that you have on your frame rather than like the size of the deficit per se now of course like there's other factors that tie into this and the less food you eat typically the hungrier you are going to be but again i almost think it's like a bit overplayed like okay if you go into an aggressive deficit you're going to be so hungry and of course it depends on the person as well like so much like appetite is genetic to an extent right um but anyways, it's been interesting to see like how much different it is now. Like, okay, my calories are 400 to 500 lower than they were at that time, but I'm not nearly as hungry. And it's cool to like, look mm-hmm. at that in, okay, that, but like, I have more fat on my frame now than I did when I was like getting down to like 185 and I'm super, super lean. Um, anyways, just, just, just interesting things to like dive into. Yeah. That's cool that you've been able to do it both ways just so you can see like, it's somewhat anecdotal. So like it doesn't completely cross over to how you would coach your clients, but it does help to have experience doing it both ways and see like, okay, my hunger really isn't that much worse. So that would be like a major, um, that would be a major point that would like keep you from dieting clients that, that aggressive. Right. So like if you've been through right. yourself and know, like, no, it really isn't that bad. Cause I have this much more ways to go then you might be more likely to use that for some people. No, for sure. And that's typically like with that, I feel like hunger, the degree that like dropping your calories by a hundred, like if you're already hungry, I feel like like getting slightly more aggressive, like the, the degree that it increases the amount of suckiness of the diet isn't that much. So typically like if someone's like, Hey, my hunger is already around like a three and we're kind of like crawling along. I typically, I don't know. I'm not sure where you fall with this actually, but typically I air towards like, let's get a little bit more aggressive. Like really, is it going to be, it already kind of sucks, right? So <laughs> let's just embrace that and get it done with sooner rather than later is typically the approach I take. And of course it depends on the individual as well. Right. Yeah. Mm, do you lean one way or the other there? I, so I, used to lean way too heavy on the side of going slow because I was scared to like make it uncomfortable in any way (laughs) for somebody. And that also just used to be like the thing is if you took somebody's calories down too low, you were a terrible coach. Um, Whenever I started this like seven, six, seven years ago doing the nutrition side of it. Um, So now it just makes so much more sense to at least start out aggressive and you can always dial it back. Uh, obviously like depending on the person that everybody's a unique case, but I definitely lean more towards the aggressive side now, like get, get somebody results and get them some confidence and just like bought into that this process will work for them. Um, and that just seems like so much better. So many people yeah. come to us like frustrated and think that nothing works for them. So if you start out really slowly, I mean, aside from the primer phase, which is super important for them to go through like a period of time at maintenance, but then like getting into the fat loss diet, if you can get somebody results that has been struggling for years with this, then it's just like so cool to see their mentality change. No, hundred percent. And that's again, like, the science of it isn't that complex. So much of coaching is actually just getting buy-in from people, right? And like exactly like you said there, that's 
a lot of times, not always, because some people it's, if it's like, Hey, we're being really aggressive right out of the gate. It's well, like I can't stick to this, right? How am I supposed to do this for three to six months? So again, you need to know your clients, but that's super important as well. Because again, like on the flip side, it's like, Oh wow. Like I lost three pounds this week. I lost five pounds this week. Now. And again, like, is that rate of loss realistic? No, not for unless five pounds per week is not realistic for anyone. Even like three pounds is outside of like a 300 pound individual. That's going to be pushing it. Yeah. But again, like a big loss out of the gate. Okay. And then like going forward, here's like your expected rate of loss and like just understanding that, okay, within these first couple of weeks, like, okay, I can't do this. That That's such a big piece. But again, it depends on where the client is at. Um, cool. But yeah, to bring it back, I feel like things are going super well. Um, I don't really have a lot to add outside of that. Do you have anything else to add to that okay. conversation? <laughs> I don't think so. Cool. Cool. Um, all right. We have a couple questions. Are you good to go ahead and get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Dope. All right. I will let you take the first one, which is... Tried and tested accessible hunger management strategy on a cut. All right. <laughs> I love where they do it too. Yeah, that's not a that's a statement. <laughs> okay, so um, what are some so what are some ways to blunt hunger? Put, just put a question mark at the end of it. Yeah. yeah try it. Um so we actually just in the last what three weeks had a full blog post on that. Um, so I would definitely recommend checking that out, but, um, the first thing that comes to mind is to make sure that your macros are right. So make sure that you're eating enough protein because that's going to be the most satiating macronutrient. Um, and then from there, divide it out however you prefer. But, um, typically if hunger is an issue, making sure that you're getting plenty of carbs, it, it, in my opinion, helps more so than having it skewed toward fat. Just because carbs are four calories per gram, fats are nine calories per gram, they're a lot more dense than carbohydrates. And things like um, fruits and vegetables that have a lot of high uh, water content and fiber content are, um, are carbohydrate sources. So starting out there with macros, um, making sure that you're well hydrated is really helpful. Um, I know that some, some people will experience, uh, dehydration as hunger. Um, but either way, it just helps to fill up your belly <laughs> to with water. Um, a big salad daily is super helpful because it is a lot of volume. It helps you get a lot of micro micronutrients and you can typically put a lean protein source on there and get your protein in for that meal as well. Um, so that whenever somebody's deep into a cut, that's super helpful to have them do daily because it's just a large meal it takes a while to eat. Um, and then on that note, slowing down your eating can be really helpful. It takes, a, it takes a while for your hunger to, or your, um, fullness to register. Like if you scarf your food down, then you're going to still feel hungry and possibly go continue to eat whenever you, if you just slowed it down and chewed your food really thoroughly, you would feel full before you ended that meal. Um, single macronutrient foods are helpful. Um, just if you think about like, uh, 
Greek yogurt with fruit and nuts. That's all three uh, macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat. You can, and that is a large volume of food. If you compare that versus a protein bar, which is also all three macronutrients, probably adding up to similar uh, calories, then the Greek yogurt, fruit, and nuts is a lot more filling. Um, and then there's all sorts of extras you can add in, like fizzy water is filling if you're on low calories because you, you're just filling up your stomach. Um, things like gum can help just because you're chewing on something that has flavor. Uh, do you want to <laughs> add anything in there? I, I know there's ones I'm leaving out. No, I think that's that's more or less what I would say. Protein bars are one that I feel like, honestly, when I see a client that is really struggling with hunger, um, that is like hitting their macros, but there's like, okay, so what can we do within your food composition? There's almost always like one to two protein bars per day there. And the thing with, (laughs) which is honestly like, Protein bars, for the most part, are typically like a candy bar that's slightly higher. Yeah. Protein. Like a lot of times, you look at the macros of like, like Snickers actually makes protein bars, and they actually they have like they're actually pretty decent macros. But like, if you look at the macros of a protein bar, it's typically like a decent amount more calories than like if you literally like just went and got a Butterfingers or a Snickers. What is, what is your favorite candy bar, by the way? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> There was, there's one called like take five or something like that. That has pretzels in it. I like that one. Oh, really? I haven't had that in so long. Questionable choice there. (laughs) Uh, What's yours? Uh, Easily. Oh, that's not an easy one. Actually Twix. Twix are amazing. Um, I love Butterfingers too. Oh, see, we have opposite tastes in candy bars. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no no one's out here choosing take fives um, <laughs> all right well agree to disagree on that one anyways but basically so like here it's under me. <laughs> <laughs> the macros for uh protein bars are typically pretty shitty and that's like one of the most common things i see with clients that are super hungry we're honestly like i would say the most common scenario is like where a client is really struggling to adhere to their macros but like we are very focused on it's deeper than like, Hey, I just don't understand how to make this work. Like I'm still like planning ahead and things of this nature. Almost always like the common, not common denominator, like the common theme in those in like the food logs is like there's one to two protein bars per day. And again, it's like such an easy way to rack up calories for not that much protein. Like this is, I'm realizing now this is like a pet peeve of mine. Whereas very much, it's almost <laughs> like, like, not quite to this extent, but like eating peanut butter for protein, right? Where it's like, okay, for, for 800 calories, I got, or for, for 200 calories, I got eight grams of protein. It's like, okay, is that really that good of a protein source? Very similar with like a lot of protein bars. It's literally like 300 plus calories for 16 to 20 grams of protein. Whereas like often we'll look at like, so like what clan I was talking about this with recently, it was like, okay, uh, first form protein bar. So it was like 20 grams of protein, 260 calories, which is like, okay, for every 130 calories, we're getting 10 grams of protein. So thus like 40 of those 130 calories are coming from protein. So it's not even like half of this is coming from protein, right? So probably not the best protein source. Now imagine even if like, we know a protein shake isn't going to be the most filling food, but imagine if you like took that 
you had a protein shake even, and that's like 120 calories, you'd probably get 24 to 25 grams of protein. And like we added some fruit or like you could have a whole big ass salad alongside of that. Or like you could get so much more fullness from, or you could have like five rice cakes along with that. Like we get so much more fullness for the same amount of calories. And that's like the biggest thing to understand too is like, okay, how can I get the most fullness out of my calories? And like you said, really touching on the food volume. So as part of satiety, part of like turning off your hunger signal is activating the stress receptors in your stomach, right? So literally like if you can get a lot of food in your stomach for a few calories, it will in like the acute sense, stretch out your stomach, not like so your stomach's all stretched out and like hanging over your belt or anything, but like stretch <laughs> it and thus your hunger signal will dissipate, right? So that's, I think, one of the biggest things for most people is really just considering food quality, making sure, like you said, making sure you can play a protein. Um, the single macronutrient foods are good. That's like, like you said, like focusing on, okay, this food is mostly protein. This food is mostly carbs or this food is mostly fat. Like making most of your meals composed of those is a good way to get a ton of volume, right? Because again, like it's like, okay, a sweet potato is mostly carbs, right? Or like if I'm eating a, like a ribeye, this is a lot of protein and a lot of fat, whereas a sirloin is mostly protein. So I'm going to get about the same amount of volume per a lot less calories, but about the same amount of protein. Um, I don't think I really have too much else to add on that. Yeah, that was good. It makes me think of those, um, the infographics that you'll see on Instagram where it's like one side is a hamburger from a fast food place. And the other side is like a full day's meal for the (laughs) meals for the exact same calories. That's that same concept. So. No, for sure. I would say though, also like one of the morals of that is to be wary of like health foods, like on the flip side, like a lot of protein, like protein energy bites. Right. Yeah. Oh, energy bites are another great one where it's like, that is literally like, if you're like Lance Armstrong, maybe you should be like having some energy yeah. bites. But like, if you're on a diet, it's such a good way to eat a lot of calories for very little. Oh, volume. yeah. It's like inter- how you make peanut butter more calorie dense. <laughs> like, <laughs> add some honey and chocolate chips in it. <laughs> right. No, exactly. That's like the only time I, energy bites are such a good example. Like, I'll recommend that to like, I have one client who, um, super super busy dude that's also trying to build and he has trouble eating until like late at night because his day is so busy so it's like different things like that like okay for yeah. you you need to get a ton of calories in in a very like small convenient way okay those are a good option but like i've had that conversation many times too with clients that are dieting i was like oh hey like i saw this recipe for energy bites and it's like, okay, let's let's steer away from that yeah. for the next couple months at least <laughs> yeah um, those cool. are sneaky uh, what should I track for fat loss? So we could, do you want me to take this one or do you want to take it? Um, go for it. Okay. Um, so I thought about this from two different directions. So like with your diet, um, there are things to track, but then also I think a lot of people skip over like the other things that they need to be tracking in a diet, um, in mm-hmm. a fat loss diet or any diet. So with, um, with the diet side, I, I have anybody who doesn't, who isn't like putting a huge emphasis on training performance. I really like having them do just protein and calories. Uh, that is something that I've shifted on a little bit over the last couple of years, just because I, like I started out, you know, having everybody do all three macros and then it's like, you get to the end of the night and you have 
40 grams of protein and one fat and negative three carbs left. And you don't know like how to make that work into a meal. So with protein and calories, it's like, okay, you hit this minimum amount of protein and then hit your calories and that's it. And so it allows for so much more flexibility. So I would say at minimum, just those two things. Um, I would not just count calories though, because most people drastically under eat protein. And if you're not tracking that, then it's just way too easy to not have any protein all day long until dinner and end up with 40 grams for the whole day. So uh, protein and calories at minimum. And if you wanted to track carbs and fats because you wanted to place an emphasis on training performance and make sure that you're like timing your carbs pre and post workout, or if you just have like a tendency to skew way more toward one macronutrient and you want to balance that out in some way, like then go ahead and track all three, but it's a minimum protein and calories. And then with the other side of that, I'd say um, measurements, at least like three or four different measurements, make sure that you are tracking those to, um, to have for like times that the scale is not moving. You know, it's like sometimes people will drop a lot of weight or sorry, a lot of um, inches with their measurements, but not drop very much weight at all. And if they were only tracking their weight, that'd be super frustrating. And they probably end up giving up before, before um, giving themselves a chance just because they're not tracking measurements and don't know like how much they've changed. Um, And then for a lot of people, I think tracking some biofeedback is a really good idea just to make sure that you're not, uh, you know, like gradually getting like lower and lower energy over the course of the day without really noticing it or your sleep, is decreasing by half an hour each month and you're getting poorer and poorer sleep throughout the diet. Um, And then for, yeah, I'd say like digestion for a lot of people is a good thing to track as well, just because a lot of times if your digestion goes um, wacky, then you can look to your diet um, in that during that week and see what changes you've made or um, what things that you could change to improve that. Maybe water has gone way off or something like that. Absolutely. What do you think like about it. that? Um, I'm pretty similar. And I would hope, I would imagine that we have people track the same things more or less. Um, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I like to track hunger as well. Um, yes. I know that's when I'm, I'm always very, it's always very interesting to see how people's hunger is fluctuating. And again, like I think hunger is one of the things we can really, in a fat loss phase, at least hunger is kind of, I think it's pretty underrated. Like people don't consider tracking it very often. We have all our clients rank hunger on a scale of one to five. Um, and it is very helpful to kind of give us, again, like if we see like a sudden drop off in hunger or a sudden massive spike in hunger, either way, there's we can associate this with like, okay, you were losing, hunger was high, hunger was a three. Now you're eating the same macros, all of a sudden hunger dropped and you're not losing anymore. Okay. So again, like we can tell, like you probably decreased movement or there's probably some source of inaccuracy in your food log. It kind of like hunger is a cool thing because it gives us, it kind of tells us where we need to look to like what could be stalling progress. Um, I think that's an underrated one. Yeah. Uh, Measurements are, measurements are a big one for sure. I, I know a lot of coaches don't track. Do you track measurements? Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. I wasn't sure. Do you guys do it weekly? Uh-huh. 
Okay. Okay. That's what it is interesting. Like, um, let's see any coach that I have worked with actually has only ever done it monthly. Oh, really? uh So like for me personally, it's always, it's always like interesting because like so much of what, so much of like what we built is like a huge piece of what we make our nutrition adjustments around is measurements. But I know a lot of, a lot of coaches don't rely on measurements very heavily. Um, that's like, do you, do you know who Andy Morgan is? Uh, no, I've heard that name, but I don't know. Did you interview him? So he's, Along with like Andrea Valdez and Eric Holmes, he was like one of the oh. authors for the Muscle and Strength Pyramids. Okay, okay. he's kind of like a he's kind of like behind the scenes now in the fitness industry, but he's like done a bunch of stff and he's pretty closely associated with like Team Three DMJ. Um, anyways, like his like when I was first starting online coaching, like his methodologies for coaching, I kind of like adopted his like tracker and his style of doing it things. So I was trying to figure out like how to go about nutrition coaching and like, well, the measurements were a huge thing to him and it made so much sense. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine now coaching people without it. No. So it is always interesting that because I can think of so, so many times where it's like, Hey, the scale didn't shift this week, but look at this change that we saw in like your measurements, your measurements changed drastically. Right. Yeah. And there it seems like then it's like, okay, well, just be patient and trust the process. Like if we don't have that data, it's hard for me to imagine in a fat loss phase. I will say in like a building phase, it's not nearly as important. But in a fat loss phase, it's hard for me to imagine like trying to coach someone without that. Yeah, for sure. I can think of one uh, client in particular who's lost like over 30 inches. I can't remember the exact number now, but it might have even been. Oh, yeah, I crazy. Yeah, she's lost like four pounds and like over 30 inches. It's insane. Um, so am I, imagine if she had been coaching with me for four months and lost four pounds and like her goal is that loss. Like, right. I mean, obviously at that um, extreme, she's going to be seeing differences in how her clothes feel, but that takes some time, especially like if you're somebody like me that lives in leggings, <laughs> that you're not going to notice that as quickly. And so if you're taking measurements and seeing like, an inch off of measurement sides each week. Like that's just such positive reinforcement that you're doing the right thing. No, no, absolutely. And that's again, like that's Angie is who you're referring to, right? Yeah. Such a good example of that. Like her measurement changes are insane and her, her progress picture, she looks completely different. Yeah. Like, you can see her clothes fit her way different. Like her physique has changed dramatically. She's gotten way stronger, but again, like, if you were only looking at her weight, she would definitely, I would say like, I, I don't know. I can't say for her specifically, but like most people would have quit by that point. Right. Like, yeah, for sure. Whereas like really <laughs> she's changed. Like she's looks like a completely different person. So that, that's a great example. Cool. I don't think I have anything else to add to that. Do you? No. Cool. All right. My question was actually about building delts, biggest keys to building delts. I'm going to let you take this one as well, because I've been trying to get your secret <laughs> for a while. <laughs> The thing that has helped me the most, there's there's two things in particular that I think have helped anecdotally um, just for myself the most. And that is slowing down. And I'll talk about that in just a second. And then um, changing, I changed up my form a little bit in the overhead press. And like, yeah. I've, I've overhead pressed so much in the past. And I just feel like they 
I wasn't feeling them as well as I do now. And um, I wasn't seeing as much progress from them as I do now. So um, slowing things down, especially for women, I think that this is so important on like lateral raise movements because you can't jump up in weight very much on those. Like I, I still use the 10 pound weights whenever I'm doing like sets of 12, um, 10, 10 to 15 I'll still use the 10 pound weights and I can't just jump up. Like I have the screw on weights. So I can't just like jump up to small increments to make improvements on those over time. So slowing that down has been so helpful. Um, and I think that anybody else in that same situation where it's, it's not like a squat where you can add five pounds week over week, like you've got to use other intensification methods. So Um, I'll do a three second eccentric on those and that's been super helpful. And then on the overhead press, I, um, have started using like a really slight decline, like on my bench, it's just one notch back and Mm -hmm. doing that makes first, like, I can't, don't even think I can explain (laughs) why that makes a big difference. Um, but it does, it makes a huge difference on that. And then, um, one more thing that I've done is, uh, add some front delt raises. So I've always just, you like chalked it up to, I get enough, um, front delt volume in my pressing, but I've added some front delt raises. And I think that that visually can make a big difference. If you are not usually working your front delts and then you add that in, I think it can make a big difference. So, um, overall for, for everybody, I'd say like making sure that you are using the right tempo and form on each exercise is really important for shoulders. And then making sure that you're hitting all three um, parts of the delt, which is front side and back and rear delts. Real de- rear delts can make a big difference too in like visually how your shoulders look and um, just like posture with your posture, like rear delts, traps, rhomboids. I think that those are really under worked for most people and it can make a big difference in even just like because of your posture like how your core looks like it pulls your your abs in whenever you're standing up straight and shoulders back like you like your grandma probably told you to (laughs) no absolutely what do you think on that have you changed up your shoulder training very significantly that's ever like made a big difference (sighs) I mean, we'll see. It's hard to tell right now. I feel like shoulders, shoulders are definitely something you can't see until you get leaner. Um, yeah. Uh, or like in a major way, you can't see progress in them until you get leaner. And then I think that's really like when you start to see a lot more definition and like, Hey, did these change or not? Um, I will say I don't, I haven't overhead pressed in like a year. Um, and it sounds like even what you're talking about is like an anterior delt press, right? So I do anterior delt presses and then I just do regular shoulder press and anterior delt would be more like keeping elbows in closer and keeping palms together. Um, shoulder press would be arms out at like 90 degrees and then, and palms forward. So I do both. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So with, uh, with that, like, even though like working from a, like, okay, I'm working from a slight incline, right? Or like I'm working from a steep incline, but I'm not quite as I'm not quite as upright as I would be normally. Just somewhat puts your delts in a better position to be loaded. Um, I'll say like for me, the biggest change in the last year has been again we don't 
I don't do any compressing work overhead, but I do a lot more. And that's the thing too with like, if we talk about the idea of like stimulus to fatigue ratio, like a standing barbell overhead press is a very fatiguing movement, but the amount of stimulus that we get Mm -hmm. from it, like for like side delts or front delts, isn't that much higher than like for side delts is not that much higher than we get from like a lateral raise, right? Front delts, again, like you're probably going to get more out of like even doing like a steep incline. So what I would say for like clients, I very much, I have a couple clients who just like love to do an overhead press or a couple clients that are doing like a power building style of training and thus we progress it. But I do really like like similar to like an anterior delt press where we're programming like, okay, maybe you're going to be at a 60 degree incline. And again, you're going to have the neutral grip, but we're pressing overhead from there. And again, it's, if you've like done a dumbbell seated shoulder press with your elbows flared out, I would definitely try that. Again, you're just at a bit more of an incline. Elbows are in front of you, more hands are neutral. It seems to be so much more effective. And then again, like past that, like, because I, I train push, pull lower, push, pull lower. And every time I, all my pull, pull days, I do like a upright row variation. Push days, I do a lateral raise variation. So I hit, have a ton of volume, but your body can recover from that very easily. Um, Delts are just such a small muscle group. So yeah, I would say for that, um, I like what you said about tempo. An interesting like understanding for me was like, okay, if we're trying to train this train your muscle, a muscle in a shortened position, then we don't want to, like I was for the longest time and until very recently, I thought like, okay, we want to be as explosive as we can on the way up to recruit more fast switch fibers. We want to slow the eccentric, right? But then like, okay, if the goal is to like here, like let's say with a lateral raise, most of the time we're probably going to be trying to train the delt kind of in the mid range to the shortened position, right? But if we're just like launching the weight up, same thing with a leg extension. Our, the muscle doesn't actually have to work very hard in the shortened position. So there, like even like on the raising portion as well, it's not like I'm like creeping up, but just taking that a little bit slower has been helpful. And then also I'll say one for lateral raises specifically, one cue that I picked up from Brian Borstein was try, just imagine you're trying to keep the weight as close to the floor for as long as possible, which it sounds like such a, does that make sense? Like imagine yeah, as you're flying, you're, heard out, you're, trying to, you're trying to keep the weight as close to the floor as possible. For whatever reason, that just lights my delts up so much more. So that's super helpful for lateral raises. And then I never really did upright rows before the last year, but I really, really, really like like D handles for or same thing for a face pull. That's like I think oh. one of the things that with like a cable upright row or a face pull that like you'll see a lot of times like you'll see people like using two cables that are pulled like two of the whatever the hell the rope attachment is called that has you know what i'm talking about right you'll see people using like two of them instead of just one to basically make it longer to increase range of motion that's what like i have very long like my d handles have like another loop attached to them so it's more or less like that so like with my face pulls i can get Face pulls, they feel amazing. Like, I have such a free range of motion. I have never felt my rear delts from my upper back like that. Same thing for my upright rows. And then I also really, really like a rear delt row. Same thing, actually, with the D handles. Yes. Which I've never, like, I never had programmed or knew how to execute super well until I would say, like, the last four months. But I would say that and, like, the change to face pulls, both I've never 
felt my weirdos like that before. Yeah, those are a new movement for me too. And I just do them with a band um, just because my garage gym setup doesn't really allow for, so I've done it. I guess I have done that with a barbell, but I didn't like those as well. Um, but okay. yeah, I feel, I really like the rear delt rows. I had never done that before. Um, maybe okay. like you said, like, like probably three or four months ago. So mm-hmm. yeah, those are, those are a good one. You could probably set I feel that like up you can your... overload. Sorry. Go mm-hmm. ahead. For sure. You could probably set that up with your cable. Couldn't you? My cable is only high. I can't put it any other position because it's anchored to the pull-up bar. So in order to do those, I always do it straight out in front of me. But maybe I could figure that out. Do you do it from high? I mean, I I do it from like about chest height. But I mean, I would almost imagine you could just lean back and do – I would imagine you could lean back and do the same or more or less. The interesting thing for that is for me, I always thought like, okay, rear delts, I want my elbows flared out at like 90 degrees. Right. But really the arm path, it's more or less like a 45 and that's Mm -hmm. made a massive, massive difference as well. Yeah. Yeah. Same for me. Cause I've, I mean, I've of course done like um, face pulls and things like that and just considered that for my rear, rear delts, but yeah, bringing them down to 45 degrees where you look like an arrow that has been super helpful. Exactly. So it's almost like it is actually like a row, but it's just like, mm-hmm. I think before how I would have executed a row that I thought was like more rhomboid focused. Now, like the few tweaks and it's like a lot more rear delt focused. Mm-hmm. Dope. Cool. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add, add to that? I, did we talk about frequency with that? Maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said, you said you do them several times for a week, right? Cause it's a small muscle you can. So I'd say um, with frequency on shoulders, if you're wanting to make that like a big emphasis, you could include something for your shoulders four to five times a week. Like t- just like touch your shoulders with some sort of a lateral raise movement, even on the days that you're doing like lower body, for example, you could um, add a set or a couple sets for your shoulders on those days. And you're going to be able to recover from it because like you said, it's such a small muscle. Absolutely. And that's like, you could straight up, you could do like a lateral raise variation or a back fly most every day and be perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And that's like, and then like a delt specialization phase. Like if the client really wants to focus on delts, that's definitely something we're working on a lot. Like, Hey, at the end of your lower body days too, we're going to do like this lateral raise variation or this face pull variation. And I like a yeah. lot of, a couple of the girls that I work with right now, it's, that's like, we do that that for both booty and delts because those are like their two main yeah. focuses. So like after lower body days, it'll be like a rear delt or side delt variation. And after upper body days, we'll do like some lighter glute work as well. And that, that work. And that's like an example of how to take advantage of frequency. Right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, anything else to add? Don't think so. Cool. All right. Well, I think that is all we have for this time. As always, thank you all for tuning in and we will talk to you guys next time.